0: As we come to the scripture, let's pray together. Father, now we come to your word. We pray that you would focus our minds, hearts, attention upon it. It would be life to us. God, it is so easy for us, for me, to take these times for granted, to open the Bible. And we forget that it is the very Word of God. Forgive us for not trembling. I pray that even in these moments that you would focus our minds, our hearts, that you would take away distraction and whatever distraction isn't taken away, that you would take away its influence by being so desirable, showing yourself so glorious that nothing could distract us. So help us to see you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Joshua 24, please. Joshua in chapter 24. I want to read the first 15 verses. Joshua 24, please, verses 1 through 15. Hear the word of God. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, "Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel: Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. And then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many." I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterwards I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. And then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who live on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand, and you went over the Jordan, came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand, and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the amorites It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwelt in them. You eat the fruits of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river of the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, I suppose the book of Joshua is really known for these two bookend passages. Uh, the first one comes in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, as Joshua is being commissioned to lead the people. And he gets this word from God. God says to him, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Uh, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, and so forth. So we know the book of Joshua by that introductory command to him. And he lives that out in the course of his life. I mean, that, that defines Joshua's life. He's the man of the book. He's the man of the scripture. He's the man that follows after the books of Moses that he had in those days, what we call Genesis, Genesis to Deuteronomy. And he reads them and he meditates upon them. And they fill what he says, they fill his mind, they fill his very life. And, and so this book of Joshua, if you're a reader of the Bible at all, and you think about it, that should come to your mind, that first passage. But then there is this ending passage as well. that's quite well known. It's that passage that goes like this, "...but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord." This is a time then when Joshua is at the end of his days, he's going to die, uh, and he knows that, and he calls the people together. And he gives them a couple of speeches. In chapter 23, he gives them this speech that speaks to them about their immediate history. That is, what has happened uh, since he became the one to lead them, since Moses' death and since he became the one to lead them. And he tells them that, that in fact, uh, God has given uh, these people, their enemies, into their hands. He's fought for them. And this was in accordance with the promise that he had made to them to give them this land for their inheritance. And now they find themselves in this land. As he says, you're, you're, you're living in cities that you didn't build, and you're eating from vineyards and orchards that you did not plant. All of this comes to you by the grace of God. It doesn't come because you earned anything. In fact, the, the promise uh, it was made to Abraham. And so in this second uh, uh, speech, in beginning in chapter 24, He goes over not just their immediate history, but their covenantal history. And he speaks to them about their father Abraham, about he came from from an idolatrous family, a family that wasn't seeking, worshiping, serving, obeying, loving God, but rather served idols and and other gods, if you will. And they, they were satisfied, or they sought their satisfaction, they sought their life definition and direction by another. And yet God plucked, Abraham, out of that, made promises to him. And what they're experiencing now is the fruit of being related to Abraham, who was called by God and given promises to by God. And so they sit there by the very grace of God, and he wants them to know that. And he builds all of that up so he can come to this challenge to them, really. He wants them to make a choice. He wants them to think this through. He wants them to be decisive. And what he wants them to do is serve God. And so he's told them all about God. Their immediate history with God, their covenantal history with God. He sets this out, all that God had done for them. And he ends with this line. He says, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. And of course, prior to that, the challenge to them is this. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods your father served beyond the river and, and serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, that is, if it's disagreeable to you, if it's wrong, if you don't think this is the right way to go, then essentially he says, then don't. Here are your options. You can serve the gods of of the fathers of your fathers, way back in the, in your distant past, prior to Abraham. You can serve those gods. You can serve the gods in 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 sort of your immediate past that some, even in Israel, looked to during the days of Egypt. Or you can go to the people who have occupied the land in which you now dwell, and there's still some of them around, so if you want to find them, you can. Go to the Amorites and and worship their gods or serve the Lord. See, he he makes this case to them. He, He builds this case to them because for him, it's a very logical thing. It's a very reasonable thing. He says, think about God. The God who's delivered you, the God who's been with you, the God who's fought for you, the God who's given you this land, the God who's made all these promises and fulfilled them. Think about that God. Now, think about any other God you want to think about. Any other God you may have familiarity with. And compare them. And for for Joshua, it's a very logical thing. He stands there as, as testimony to say that if you follow after this God, if you serve Him, then you'll have His wisdom from His Word and you'll have success. You live real life. It just says I want you to make a choice. There's a line in the sand. Before I die, before we go on, there's a line in the sand. Who is it that you're going to serve? Of course, Joshua's not going all postmodern on these people. He's not saying there really are other gods. He's not really saying anything like, "Well, you know, no one can really know the true God." And every culture has its own expression of the true God. So there was an expression of the true God before, you know, in Abraham's fathers. And there was an expression of God in Egypt. And there's an expression of God among the Amorites. And there's an expression of God that that I hold, that I've been living. Now, I'd like you to follow my expression of God. But if it doesn't work for you, it's all right. Then, Then follow one of these other gods. He's not doing that at all. In fact, he's laying out in some sense the absurdity of following any other god. And he does that, of course, with a warning. We remember from chapter 23 and verse 16, he says this. He says, If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. So so he's not giving them this sort of multiple-choice gods. He's not saying that they're all viable, and he's not even saying that his God, the God he follows, is a little better than all the others and if they followed him, it would go better for them. He's, he's really laying out this choice. It's either God exclusively or really no God at all. So for Joshua, it's a, it's a logical thing. It's an exclusive thing. It's following after this God or none other. And he lays it out like this because his hope is that they'll see the absurdity of it. They'll see the absurdity of following any other god. And they'll say, yes, of course, we will follow uh, after God. Now, now, why does he put it like this? Why does he mention these other gods at all? Why doesn't he just say, serve God and that's it? Why does he lay before them some sense some sense of choice? And I think first this. Did he once... To make them and ultimately us aware that there are competitors for the place of God in the lives of people. There are competitors of you. There are other options that are presenting themselves to us all the time. In fact, God himself warned of this very directly in the Ten Commandments, the first two most especially. He says, don't have any other gods before me. I want you to understand that there are idols all over the place. I want you to understand that in the human heart, you will look for ones other than God to tell you who you are. you look to, to ones other than God to tell you how you're to live. You'll look to those other than God to find your joy and your happiness and your satisfaction. So don't do that. I'm God. And of course, God condescends even at that point when He gives the Ten Commandments to say who He is. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Look what I did to the gods in Egypt. Look what I did in that situation. And look how I've loved you to deliver you. Now, now serve me. Don't have any other gods before me. And then in the second commandment, he says, Don't make any graven images of me. He wasn't saying don't make any other images of any other gods, although that would be outlawed in commandment number one. But he's saying don't make any graven images, even of me, that is. Don't make me in your own image. Don't make me to be who you want me to be, because I'm not that. Whatever it is that I am, I'm not the God that you would create. That would be foolish for the finite to create the infinite in any kind of way. So don't even try. Don't even try to make an image that fits me completely. Because it will distort me. Because I'm more I'm bigger than you could ever imagine. There are elements of me that that, that you you won't see. And so he says, don't do that. Because you'll be tempted to do that as well. In fact, it's very interesting. At the end of the Apostle John's first epistle, that's 1 John, chapter 5, last verse. Do you remember how that ends? He says, my dear children, my little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's such an odd way to end a little letter. But it isn't. When you think the propensity that we have to follow after others. John Calvin, uh, named after our street, <laughs> as I like to put it, think about it, um, said that our minds are idle factories. Now, not I-D-L-E, although that's probably true as well for many of our minds, being quite idle in that respect. But he says that we can think of, I mean, it isn't, the, it isn't, it isn't things out there, it isn't little statues and so forth and so on. It, it, our minds create desires that will enable, that, that, that cause us to, to want to follow those desires and not follow God. We have this great idol of self-glorification. We want people to think that we're really competent and that we're really all that and we can really do it and we're inherently good. And, and, and that idolatry of a sort of self-glorification exists in us when God calls us to humble ourselves and say that we're not all that and that we actually need him. And so you see all of this. So I think Joshua is wanting us to know that there are idols out there, and there are idols in here and are propensity to follow after things that are not God and to serve him. And secondly, this, I think he wants us uh, to realize that this following God, this serving him, must be intentional. It isn't something that we drift into. It isn't something that's automatic because you were raised in a Christian home or because you, were, you come to church or even because you at you one point in time believe in Jesus. It isn't just a sort of this drift. We don't coast our way to heaven. There's, it's real life. And there's real battles. And it's, there's real difficulties. And there are real temptations. And I think at this point, with these people, he's saying, Now listen. You're in the land, you're blessed, you're living in cities you didn't build, you're eating from vineyards and orchards that you didn't plant, everything is easy right now. And I think he's saying, now the hard life starts, because it's easier to be dependent upon God when you're in the middle of a real battle, and you know that That if your sword doesn't cause a thousand to flee, you're in big trouble. And the only one that can make that happen is God. And so you're really dependent upon him at that moment in time. It's when life is good and life is easy and life is nice and life is, is, everything's coming to you. He says, now listen, I want you to serve God. Don't stray from him now at all. And that's an intentional thing. And therefore it's a choice. It's a choice in a moment in time. It's a choice every time an idol pops up its head. It's a choice when there's a, a temptation that comes. At that moment in time, the proverbial rubber meets the road and we need to make a choice. Who am I going to serve? Who am I going to follow? Who am I going to obey? So he wants us to see that it's really intentional uh, at that point. So the big question is, what does it really mean to serve God? To mean to serve him. He says, That's for me and my house. We will serve the Lord. I don't want you to serve any of these other gods. I want you to serve the one true and only, holy, sovereign, living God. Now, that's not as easy a question to answer as it may appear. Because normally when we think of serving someone, we think of providing something for them, fulfilling a need that they might have. When I call room service, it's called room service because it serves me. It serves a need that I have. It fulfills a need. And so they serving me fulfill a need that I have. When I go to a service station... It means that I have a particular need that must be serviced and the people at the service station serve me by providing something that I need. When you, when you have a boss and you serve your boss, uh, you, you fulfill requirements, you fulfill something that your boss needs for you to do. But God doesn't need anything. And so to serve him isn't ever to provide for him something that he needs. It isn't ever to provide for him something that he cannot get or he does not have. Uh, You might remember the Apostle Paul speaking about God in Athens. uh, Came up to a group of people and there was this sort of memorial to what they referred to as the unknown God. And so, Paul engaging them at that point, was to engage them about who God really is. And so in Acts chapter 17, uh, in verse 22, we read this. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So he serves us. He provides what we need. Great passage for prayer in Psalm 50. The psalmist puts it like this, verse seven. He says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I'll testify against you. I'm God your God. Not for your burnt offerings do I rebuke you, your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. It's basically saying, I don't need your animals. That's not the point of all this. You don't bring these bulls and goats to me because in any way, shape, or form I'm deficient in bulls and goats. I owe the cattle, own the cattle on a thousand hills. And there, if you want to be figurative and poetic, uh, a thousand means all of them. It means it's just a big number. You can say, well, if there were a thousand and three hills, who owns the cattle on those other three hills? That isn't the point. God's just saying, I own them all. Everything's mine. What's it don't So then he goes on to put it like this. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. Verse 12, he puts it very bluntly. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. God's saying, if I did have a need, trust me, you'd be the last people I'd tell. There's got to be a better place to go for it other than you. So don't think that whatever it is that I could possibly need if I didn't have it, though I do... I would even come to you. So when I call you to serve me, it isn't because I'm lacking, God says. It isn't because I need something. That isn't the point. So get that out of your head. In fact, it goes on like this in verse 14. Verse 13, Do I eat the flesh of bulls, drink the blood of goats, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you. And you shall glorify me," he says. So, so, our relationship isn't one where God says, "Where I have needs and you supply them." Our relationship is such that you have needs and I supply them. Probably, hmm. I have to be careful of this, so I'll guard it and say one of the passages in Scripture that I live off of on a daily basis is Psalm 81.10. The psalmist writes, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. That's how we live. That's our very posture before God. And it never changes. We're always the one before God with our mouths open wide like a baby bird hoping for more than a worm, at least I am, although baby birds probably like worms. Whatever a worm is to them, I'm looking to God for, with my mouth open so wide you can't even see my head because I know that unless He fills me, unless He satisfies me, I'm dead. And He's the only one that can do that. So that's our posture before Him. And so we must understand that when we serve God, we're not adding anything to Him. We're not providing something that He needs. In fact, the prophet Isaiah makes a wonderfully hilarious contrast between God and these other gods. He begins in verse 45 of Isaiah, and I'm just going to pick out some verses here randomly, so you don't necessarily have to turn to this. But in Isaiah 45, verse uh, 5, About God, he says, God says, I am the Lord, there is no other besides me, there is no God, I equip you, though you don't know me. That my people may know from the rising of the sun in the west, and from the west, that there is none beside me, I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse 7, I form light and create darkness, I make well-being and create calamity, I am the Lord who does all these things. Verse 12, I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. And then he, com- he compares God to any idols. Verse, chapter 46, verse 1, he speaks of these false gods, and he says, Bell bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They can't save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. He says, you make these idols, and you have to carry your own gods around. Isn't that funny? Isn't it funny to think that your god can't even get around on his own? That you have to carry him? Why in the world would you trust him? Why in the world would you go to him for help? Why would you go to him for anything if he can't even get around without you? Verse 3, God says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. You can't get around without me, God says. I'm fine without you. I get around just fine. Verse 6, Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Is that the funniest thing? They fall down in worship. They lift it on their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place if one cries to it. It does not answer or save him from trouble. It's just a a thing that some goldsmith made. God says, I'm not like that. And then finally, the, piece, the final piece of all of this is in Isaiah, chapter 64, verse 4. God says this. From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no, I have seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Other translation. Who works For those who wait for him. Other translations. Who serves those who waits for him. God is saying, I'm the only God anyone has ever seen who serves those who wait for him. That is, who come to him, who bow before him, who seek their sustenance from him. And he says, and and I think Joshua is thinking these very same thoughts. Is it absurd? Is it not absurd to serve any other kind of God, to worship any other kind of God, to worship anyone other than the very one who doesn't need you but actually gives breath to you, gives life to you, gives sustenance to you. And God says, I'm he. We knew this from Jesus. Jesus said, I've come not to be served but to serve i give my life as a ransom for many. We saw him do that. We saw it in picture form on the night that he was betrayed, when he took off his glory, when he took off his clothing and gave the very appearance of a slave, of a servant. And he got down on his hands and knees, with a basin and a towel, and he washed the feet of all his disciples. If you had looked at that picture, you know, if Da Vinci had been there, you know, prior to the you know gathering them on the one side of the table, and if you had taken a f- picture of that, you would look at that and you wouldn't know at that point in time who was the master, and who were the disciples? You would have picked wrongly, you would have even ignored the one going around washing feet, but you can, i didn 't come for you to serve me; I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. It wasn't too long before we saw that service take place on a cross. It isn't too long when we realize that he continues to serve even as he intercedes for us. And then this passage out of Luke in chapter 12, which I've, when I read it, when my Bible reading through the year, I almost always miss it. And so I have to always circle the pronouns in order to stay on top of this passage because it's so completely surprising. It's so counterintuitive. It's so not what we would expect. Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Parable of Jesus telling them. He says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Now, You think, I think, that when the master comes home and I'm the servant and I'm waiting for the master to come home and I'm all excited about him coming home, that when he comes home, I'll get his slippers, I'll get his lunch, I'll make his bed, I'll do all these things for him and I will serve him. But notice what it says, truly I say to you, he, not they, but he, that is the master, truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them... Recline at table, and he will come and serve them. That's a picture of the coming of Jesus. When he returns, whatever service to him means, and there'll be service through eternity, we'll come to what it means in a minute, it doesn't mean that we supply to him something that is lacking that we supply to him something that he needs. Because he needs nothing. Because he's perfectly content in who he is. He doesn't need us to carry him. He can get along just fine. We need him. And we always will need him. So we can make this point that we know for certain that whatever serving him means, it comes after he has served us. We serve, if you will, from His service to us. As we live from Him, we serve from His service to us. I hope that's not confusing. I I just don't want us to put God below us. I don't want us to put God in this uh, thing, in this place, that makes it look like He's going to be gone if somehow we don't meet His needs, if somehow we don't serve Him. Because He's God. We're the ones that are nothing without Him. He's everything either way. So then what does it mean to serve Him? Because we've been commanded to serve Him. Joshua at this point, he says, serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. That's a commandment and that's a life for Joshua. In fact, Psalm 100 that we love so much, second verse, serve the Lord with gladness. So not only do we serve Him, but it isn't a a, a dutiful service. It's a glad, joyful service humble, submissive, happy service. In fact, if it isn't, we don't have time to go here, but in Deuteronomy 28, verse 47, uh, there's a curse given upon those who do not serve the Lord joyfully. And so we need to serve Him with gladness, with lightheartedness, Of course, we'll serve him. This is the very joy of my life to serve him. No matter what that service looks like, this is the joy of my life. So we serve him with gladness. In fact, in Romans, in chapter 12, verse 11, uh, the Apostle Paul puts it like this He says, Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent, that is, sort of boiling over, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. So, we must. We just need to understand what it means to serve Him. Turn to Matthew chapter 6, please. I'm, I'm, I know I'm going roundabout to get to this, but it's fun, isn't it? Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, from the lips of Jesus. Well, help us, I think, to understand what it means to serve, and most particularly what it means to serve God. <clears throat> Matthew 6, verse 24, you know this verse if you're a reader of the Bible, especially of the sayings of Jesus. No one can serve two masters, so not unlike what Joshua was talking about. Joshua was essentially saying there's an exclusive serving of God. You can serve God or these others, but not both. No one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. That's how my translation has it. Some of the older ones, you can't serve God and mammon. Mammon sort of being a bigger expression for wealth, for money, for possessions. So you can't serve both. The question is, how do we serve? How, How would one serve money if one were serving money? Well, you wouldn't be adding anything to money itself. You wouldn't be supplying something that money needs. What you do when you serve money is you trust its promises. You trust its authority to be able to provide for you what money promises to provide. Satisfaction, security, whatever that is. And then you orient your life around money as that which satisfies and supplies what you need. And so what do you do? You obey it. You do, in the extreme, whatever it takes To get it. So if money is really your God. And you're really serving it. And you really believe that it has the authority to satisfy you. Then you'll do in the extreme whatever that takes to get it. Whether that's unscrupulous. Or whether it isn't. But you see how you serve money. And who gets the glory from our serving money? Money. People look at money and see us serving it, and say, money must be glorious. Money must be great. Because look at all these people who are ordering their whole lives around it, who are obeying everything that money says to do in order to get more of it, so that its promises will come true in their lives. Does that make sense? Tracking with me? So therefore, how do we serve God? We serve God by trusting that he has the authority to satisfy the longings of our souls. That he has the authority, given his promises, to be the ones that if we orient our lives around him, that if we seek to obey him and follow him, then we will, as Joshua says, have success. Now understand, of course... That isn't American success. That's success in God's terms. That is success in being the person God has made us to be in following after Him as being a person of character, of being a person of righteousness. And he says that really satisfies. Because you see, when we come to God, he says, listen... What will satisfy you is to be conformed to the image of my son. What will satisfy you really is to be like Jesus. As one who lives so as to please the father. One who lives a life of righteousness and holiness. That's what will satisfy. Now understand what that means is that you may be ostracized from your community, from your friends. What that may mean is that you may lose your job. What that may mean is you may lose your life. But that may mean that you may not achieve the social status that you may otherwise think you deserve and all that, given your humanness and given where you are. But, 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 but trust me, God says. Trust me that I have the authority to conform you into the image of my son. And so come to me for that. And so how do we serve him? We orient our whole lives around His authority to satisfy the very needs of our souls. Which means we orient ourselves around obeying Him, around following Him. And what's amazing in the midst of this is that we're the beneficiary of our service to God. Now you see, money holds that promise. Money says you'll be the beneficiary of serving me. But money lies. God doesn't lie. But it takes this trust in the authority of God to satisfy the very desires of our souls. Okay, I'll do this. Romans and <clears throat> chapter 15, I think, might be wrong. Uh, No, Romans chapter 16 and verse 17. Just another peek at this. Romans chapter 16. Verse 17. And I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive Again, contrast between serving Christ and serving our own appetites. Now, what's it mean to serve our own appetites? It means that we believe that our appetites, our passions, our desires, have the authority to satisfy us. And God says, beware of your appetites, unless they're redeemed appetites. Right? Unless they're righteous appetites. But but your natural inclinations, your natural appetites are not those that will really satisfy you. But they hold out this promise that they will. So you can either serve them, and you can become a self-indulgent person. But a self-indulgent person will die alone. A self-indulgent person will never be satisfied. And so he says, therefore, serve Christ. It's so a wonderful peace in the book of books of Moses, in both Exodus and Deuteronomy. You can find it in Exodus twenty-one, Deuteronomy chapter fifteen. The Hebrew found himself or herself, an Israelite found himself or herself in poverty. That person could indenture themselves, could enslave themselves, if you will, to another Hebrew. And that was a way of being taken care of them and their families. But since the Israelites had themselves been enslaved in Egypt, God had very strict rules about this. And he says this, you can enslave your fellow Hebrew for their good, if you will, for six years, up to six years. But in the seventh year, you must set them free. And when you set them free, you must, since you were slaves yourselves, you must take note of how you've profited by their service to you, by their work for you, by them being enslaved, if you will, to you. And so when they go, take note of that and bless them. Bless them from your flock, Bless them from your grain, bless them from your wine press. So, when you send them out, in a sense, you should be setting them up so they'll never get into this situation again. And you think about that and you go, That'd be, that's really pretty remarkable. Take the, the bad connotations of slavery, if you will, away. And say, here's a situation where you have a community of people and say, if one of you finds themselves in great difficulty and you're able, they can work for you, if you will, and give themselves to you, but only up to six years. But remember, at the end of that six-year period of time, you've got to set them up. Because you can't take advantage of them. At the end of that six-year period, you're going to try to set them up in such a way that they'll never find themselves again in this enslavement. And that's a wonderful thing. But then, there's this little twist. And Moses says, however, if, this slave, wants to stay with his master. And you think, why would he do that? Well, there are a number of reasons. But it's as if this slave wants to stay with his master, he will say to his master, I love my master and my master's household. Meaning during that six-year period of time, what he's thinking is, I know I can have my freedom. And I know I could be set up to go off on my own. But what I've experienced in the, in, the, in the household of my master is such that I trust that my life will be better and I'll be more satisfied, my family and me, if I stay here as a slave to my master. So I'm trusting the authority of my master to provide for me in such a way that it will be a great blessing to me greater than anything else I could ever experience in my life. And he said, "If that's the case, then what the master needs to do is take this slave and take an awl, a little instrument for poking holes in things, and you need to take that slave's earlobe and stick it up against your doorpost, and take that awl, which I usually pronounce as owl when I read that, and I want you to take it and I want you to pound it such a way." that this slave, for that moment in time, is stuck to your doorpost as a symbol that he belongs to you. And then, of course, when he comes back and you pull that thing out of his earlobe, there's a hole in his ear, which means at that point in time, his ears have been opened so that he will hear his master's voice and obey. And the reason that he's willing to do that voluntary enslavement is because he believes he trusts in the goodness of his master. And that his master is the one he can always look to to satisfy everything in his life. And I think that's this. And Joshua says, here's, here's what I want you to see. There's no one you can satisfy like God. So I want you, at this moment in time, the line is drawn Today. I want you to choose who you'll serve. You can serve any other thing that you can possibly think up or imagine. Or you can serve God. And to serve God means that you trust Him, that He's the one who will satisfy everything in your life and everything in your soul. And your ears will be open to Him to listen that you might obey. That's the line for us. And what we need to see is this this God and to really see how absurd it is to follow any other. And now I know when I say that I'm just like you. I understand the temptation of idols. I understand looking to other things to satisfy. I understand the temptation of that. I understand the sin that I find myself in. I find myself um, not serving God. I find myself disobeying, just like the rest of us. And I need these moments of, I can put it this way, covenant renewal, to say, okay, I get it, I understand. Now, I do this, we all do this, at various points in our lives. We come back to the truth. and We said, ah, I've just sinned maybe I sinned three and a half weeks ago and I'm still in it, right? It'd take that long. But I've been sinning this way for a long, long time. And then the word comes to us, we are you going to serve? Whose doorpost are you connected to? Whose voice are your ears open to? Moment here. It's a group of people. Say, all right. Alright. It's so for me and my house will serve the Lord. Not just me, but even all those I have influence over. It's a great word for moms and dads, by the way, especially dads. Alright? how we leading? Joshua saying, My household is going to go and drive out all these other enemies. That's what we're going to do. We're going to follow, we're going to serve the Lord. And we think, therefore, about Jesus, who did say, I've come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. We see him, as I mentioned a while ago, we see him at that last supper, stripped, take off his glory to serve. We see him on the cross. We know of him interceding, living to intercede for us. We know the day that he will return and he will bless us beyond what we could ever imagine. And there's a sense in which God says to us, take a moment, think about anything you could possibly have that could satisfy you as great as you could ever imagine it satisfying you. Think about money. Think about sex. Think about prestige. Think about position. Think about Recreation. Think about about anything. And imagine how great you think that could satisfy me. And then I think he comes to us and says, that can't even hold a candle. Because that will eventually destroy you. But if you serve me and me alone, you'll be satisfied in ways you could never even Imagine. choose this day who you will serve let's pray Father here we stand before this table and I pray even before I break this bread and pour this juice out that you would set it apart in such a way to enable us to see who you are Money has never been concerned about our eternal souls. Sexual pleasure has never been concerned that we've been right with you. Position in our community has never cared whether we're people who live to glorify the true and living God. But yet those are the things that matter. And we look upon this table and realize that's what you care about. That you've come for that very thing to serve us in such a way that will free us from our sin, to serve us in such a way that will free us from the penalty of that sin, to serve us in such a way that will free us from the power of that sin that would enable us to live as you have created us to live, that we might know the joy of belonging to you so we pray, God, that you would open our eyes to see that and see everything else in comparison to that and have everything else pale to that and enable us to be driven by a vision of you. And Jesus, meet with us here. I pray even today (laughs) that in these moments that you would satisfy our longings. Give us a taste of the Lord that we may see that you're good and desire you all the days of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you as we come to this table that we come on this remembrance of this night that Jesus was betrayed and he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave this too to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And so this morning as we come to this table. To think about Jesus, to meet with him. It's this renewal time. It's a coming to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Because this isn't the table of grace if it's the table of the Lord. He's the one who invites to it, and he invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight, without hope except in his sovereign mercy. All those who believe and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel freely, the Savior of sinners. You desire to live in such a way ears open serving Christ that's true for you let me invite you to come these two sections come down this aisle to my left these two down the aisle to my right take a piece of bread dip it in the cup and your own heart say for me and my house we will serve the Lord please come Pray with me, Father in heaven, you've watched us come to this table to renew this covenant with you, that we would follow after Christ, that we would serve you. Please give us grace to do just that. Uh, Father, we pray that we would know deep in our own souls, as Joshua did from your word and our experience, that you satisfy. To follow you, to obey you, is more precious than anything else that we could possibly ever do or know. And the satisfaction that comes from that is greater than any satisfaction we could ever know from any, anything else. So, Father, cause us to be exclusively obedient to you, we pray. Father, those among us who have particular needs, uh, we give you thanks for your grace in the life of John Dillon as he's received this new kidney. We pray that it would uh, attach well, that it would work, that he would glorify you uh, as you worked in his own life. We pray for this one who's given this kidney that she would be healed as well. For Melissa Foster, we pray that she would know your presence and your grace. And, Father, looking to you would be the very sustenance of her soul tomorrow as she has surgery. So be with her as well. And for each of us, Father, we pray that you would be with us, that we would know your sustenance and strength, that we would know how it is that you have acted and worked in our own lives through Jesus. And that, Father, our hearts would be so amazingly turned by that that we would seek none other. This we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. The response to the benediction is this response that we have been using throughout this Advent season. Christ has come. Christ is coming again. Hallelujah. Again, a reminder of our gathering tonight for our, our children. Please receive this as God's benediction now to Him, who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through His power that's at work within us, to be glory in the Church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Christ has come. Christ is coming again. Hallelujah.